This is Don Bettinelli, the CEO of SQPN, with a brief but very important message. For more than a decade, SQPN has produced the Catholic faith and pop culture podcasts that you love. We're a nonprofit organization, so it's only your generosity that lets us carry out our mission. We haven't run a fundraiser in two years, and that's why we need to ask for your help right now. Please make a pledge of whatever amount you can afford to help us continue providing your favorite podcasts, as well as exciting new ones we have planned. To make your pledge and find out about the free thank you gifts we'd like to send you, visit sqpn.com slash give. That's sqpn.com slash give. Thank you for your generosity. May we hear from you today? You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, episode number 20. Captain DeBridge. Spock here. Make it so. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Don Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. Today we're discussing the original pilot episode of the original series called The Cage. And we'll explain what that means, why you have to make that distinction in just a second. But joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? So, uh, but before we get into it, I just want to say to folks, um, please, uh, like I've said before, uh, remember to like, share, recommend write reviews and uh, subscribe to the podcast in all the different places. Your response to the show is, is great. Uh, we, 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 even before we started air, airing the new episodes, we started getting subscribers to the feed and that's been great. So uh, we're looking forward to, to growing our audience and you're a key part of that. So thank you very much. So folks, uh, the cage is uh, the, was the first attempt by Gene Roddenberry and Dead Zealous Studios in creating a new a, a new TV series called Star Trek. Um, yeah, so let's talk uh, for just a second about the background of that. Yeah. Um, or, originally, Gene Roddenberry, he'd had kind of a varied career. He'd been a pilot, he'd been a cop, uh, and he'd gotten into writing TV uh, shows. He wrote for um, a show called uh, uh, Paladin, or I'm sorry, Have Gun Will Travel, which featured Paladin. Mm-hmm. And he then got his own show, which was called The Lieutenant, and did not last very long because of his famously prickly relations with uh, studios. They didn't like working with him because he was so high maintenance and defiant, frankly. Um, and he then went to, and he shopped the idea for Star Trek around Desilu, founded by Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball. Um, mm-hmm. What displayed some interest, uh, but they weren't too sure about it. And eventually Lucille Ball herself stepped in and greenlit it. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they went to pilot and they did this uh, initial pilot called The Cage, which they came back and and the network thought it was too cerebral, um, <laughs> which, which it, it says something about the state of television at the time. <laughs> um, they, they, the yeah, things are if, way if think, more cerebral than this now. Uh, I mean, if you but, think it's considered an idiot, idiot box today, can you imagine what it was like then? <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Um, and but they didn't un, un, and it, it, for almost any other series, that would have been the end of it. You produce a pilot, they said, we don't like it. And that's the end. Um, but in this case, they took the very unusual step for either then or now of commissioning a second pilot that made changes. And mm -hmm. that resulted in where no man had gone before. And after that, they liked it enough that the second pilot, that they greenlit the right. series. And that's how we got the original series. Right. And this all took place in 1964. That's when this and and not only do they retool the, um, you know, the story, they changed the, the cast, uh, the, you mm -hmm. know, and and the ship. And the ship, right? The the just yeah. the the design, the interior design of it. But uh, yeah, because I was gonna say the exterior is very similar. It it did yeah. get a coat of paint, you know. Yeah. It does look different, but yeah. it, but the basic shape and design and everything is recognizably the NCCC one seven zero one Enterprise. Yep. Yeah, though you'll see various accoutrements that are different, like they've got those snaky. Uh, desk monitors, the little tiny right. ones that yep. look like those Luxo lamps. Yes, and there's a there's a there's a a sunroof in the Enterprise, <laughs> yeah, which you see which right at the we'll, beginning. We'll talk about that. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, and yeah, the, the, some of the interior spaces, like the captain's quarters, are very different and that sort of thing as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, and, you know, they also changed some of the characters. Well, we kept Spock because I guess they they liked him. They changed him a little bit. We'll we'll get into all of that. Um, but, but so. Um, this the the title itself, the name itself is the cage, but it, that really wasn't the name of the of the episode uh, when they created it. They did call it the Menagerie, but when they when they did the um, the Menagerie two, well, they reused the this pilot later on in a mm -hmm. in a series uh, a season cliffhanger, a season ending cliffhanger, uh, and the first they Star Trek clip show <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They uh, they. Uh, that was I forget which season with that. I think it was between the second and third season. Uh, I think it was between the second and third. And um, they called that the menagerie. So internally, they just they just started referring to this as the cage set in order to make a distinction. Um, and it wasn't actually shown th this this episode wasn't shown on its own on air until 2008 when it was shown in syndication, which is very interesting. By the way, it wasn't a season-ending cliffhanger, but it was a two-parter with a cliffhanger. Right. It was oh, okay. It, it was in the it was in the middle of the first season. Oh, really? That's weird. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, for some reason, I had a different memory of that. Um, so the the basic you know plot line of it is it takes place eleven years before the the original series and you know went Kirk's captaincy, um, and the Enterprise is lured to this planet of Talos Four. Um, where Captain Pike, that's the captain, and others are captured and put in a zoo by telepathic beings um, mm -hmm. for various nefarious reasons. So that's sort of the the very basic uh, mm -hmm. story. So and and it's very reminiscent, and this is true of Star Trek as a whole. But it's very clear that one of the inspirations for this was the movie Forbidden Planet. Yes, um, this is we got ancient debt visiting us visiting a planet, find out what happened to a lost expedition. Hmm. A beautiful young woman, we'll call her Vina this time instead of Alta, like in Forbidden Planet. <laughs> um, got a alien race with fan dying alien dying or dead alien race with fantastic powers uh, this is forbidden and we've got the united federation of planets this is forbidden planet yes yes so well, a couple of things that kind of strike me right right off the bat is first the the opening um the opening credits 
mm-hmm. is there's no voiceover. We don't get the mm-hmm. uh, uh, this is a voyage of the Starship Enterprise, etc. We don't get that in this in this pilot. Um, it's right. there's no there's no narrative, just a lot of whooshing. Um, hmm. And then the we, familiar music, the music, yeah. the, the, yes, the, the famous music is there. The music is in place. We get that first um, as we pan into the bridge. Like you said, Father yeah. Corey, we go in through the the uh, sunroof. Uh. Yeah, this is this is a great shot for people who who haven't seen it. We we start with a long shot of the Enterprise, and we gradually zoom in. And it it, it, it they, they take a little bit of time doing this. It's a little mm-hmm. slow for modern television, but they gradually zoom in on the Enterprise to give us this. And they did this deliberately to give us a sense of scale of how yeah. big this ship is. And then we zoom into the little top part of the saucer section where the bridge is located for no good reason. And then we zoom into that little circle at the top of the bump on, on the saucer section. And we see it's a skylight and the entire bridge is down in there. And then we zoom into that and transition right. down into the bridge. It's right. a very effective long shot for, especially yeah. for the time. And it, it does, it gives us the scale and it tells us where the bridge is. So we always, so from now on, we always know where the, the bridge of the Enterprise mm-hmm. is when we're looking at the ship in this in yeah. the series. You know, I, I think you know, and just kind of say, you know, as we start out talking here, is you know, it, this is very recognizably Star Trek. Yes, mm-hmm. I mean, this is very you know, but there there's so many elements that have become known as as Star Trek really were established in this this pilot, and yet there's enough differences too. Like the bridge is recognizably the bridge of the Enterprise, right? But it looks so different from what was done in the actual series. It's a little more mm-hmm. simple. There were less yugas and gadgets everywhere. Um, the uniforms are different. Like you said, the gooseneck thingies, the viewers, uh, I think those must have been taken out just from production reasons. They must have gotten in the way you know, well, all the time. And it is interesting too. some of the, you know, the more military aspects where there was, you know, there was a security guard on the bridge by the turbo lift. <laughs> right. This guy there just was, standing you know, there the, the whole time. The assistant, <laughs> the guy, there was an assistant that would stand there. By the captain's chair when the captain was in the chair. Yeah. Things that like was, that. Those were probably taken out for purely budgetary reasons. So, exactly. Ooh, we can avoid paying these people if we don't make them stand. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. But also very much a connection to naval tradition. Those things, those are mm-hmm. things that exist on naval ships of the time, uh, you know, in our time, in the 1960s. And so there was that that connection. Um, well, one of the things that was pretty daring that they did was that there was a woman first officer. Uh, yeah. Number one. Number Which one. they pointed out point blank too. Yes, yeah, I'm not true. used to having a woman on the bridge. Oh, except you, number one, you're different. Well, the weird yeah. thing is, is there was another woman on the bridge that he was standing behind two minutes before that. Like, well, it's, they're a little inconsistent about all that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, By the way, I thought it was interesting. Number one is sitting, even though she's first officer, she's sitting at what later, and of course, this wasn't established at the time, but she's yeah. sitting at what was later established as the helm. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, she so it, how curious how that works. Well, when you think about too, like where where does the first officer go? Does he just stand next to the captain? And then because in in the original yeah. series, Spock was the science officer, so he had so a he's place at the to science be. station. Yeah. yeah. So you know, in this case, so the, yeah, it wasn't wasn't like DS or uh, next generation next, yeah. where Riker was always sitting the next seat over. Yeah. Yeah. yeah having three seats would be interesting. Um, in, in, incidentally, it's, it's Spot gets the very. I noticed Spot gets the very first line of the whole series, so he gets the first Star Trek line ever. Yes, mm-hmm. um, and he kind of 
it it checked the circuit. You know, it, it's it's yeah. very sort of it's it's not great acting at that moment. You know, no. on the part of Nimoy, he, he's he's a much better actor than that. Yeah, mm-hmm. and Nimoy has commented about his early acting in Spock in the role of Spock because initially, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, but initially, number one was the one with no emotions. Right, Spock right. had emotions, and we will see that in this uh, in this episode. Um, and so he wasn't given the be stoic direction. Instead, he said, "Okay, well, um, I'm gonna kind of." bellow like an off bellow out orders like an like a naval officer mm-hmm. would right and it took him a while to get over that yeah <laughs> uh and i'm glad they did it in the unaired pilot the initial unaired mm-hmm. pilot uh one of the things that, that will strike us uh the viewer is um the, the corridors like the they were very busy but the but the original series the corridors were very busy but there were a lot Until of people, the third season. <laughs> yes, mm. when the budget got cut. Uh, yeah. But uh, there were a lot of people in civilian clothes kind of wandering mm. around, which is very we, interesting. Yeah, we see this couple like they're just coming back from a swimming pool or something. And they're wearing the gr- woman is wearing a skirt and the mm-hmm. guy is wearing kind of a T-shirt and shorts. Yeah. And, and they're very clearly civilian clothes. These aren't any kind of Star Trek uniform. They've just been like having a date at the swimming pool or tennis court or something. Yeah, I was going to say hit hit the tennis court on the ship or something. Well, it's even they and they look very much like 1960s leisure wear. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, it sort of reminds me of in the in the pilot episode of Next Gen, where we had the uh, the male officer walking down the 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 porter wearing a skirt. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very daring. I noticed they never did that again. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Why can't in the future? Why can't men wear dresses? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Well, if they're kilts, it's okay. Well, yeah. Well, hey, if it's a kilt, I'll, I'll, I'll go with it. <laughs> um, so we quickly get into uh, P- Captain Pike's internal conflict, which lies really yeah. at the heart of this episode. Yeah. Which and he's he's played by actor Jeffrey Hunter. Yes, and in uh, right. Pike, so you know, we we we're kind of told that the Enterprise had just come from a devastating mission where. Uh, People died under his command, and he's very conflicted mm-hmm. to the point where he's thinking, maybe I should just get out of this because, uh, you know, I'm I'm so I'm, I'm over having the responsibility of life and death. And so then I've he, got two hundred and three lives depending on me. Yes. Half as many as Kirk, uh, Pike. So yeah. suck it up. Uh, so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he has this conversation with the ship's doctor, Dr. Boyce, um, an older uh, gentleman, elderly uh, gentleman, the the father figure in a sense, a confidant encourages who, his encourages his patients to drink. Yes, he brings in a box and, uh, that 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 apparently is a portable bartender kit and serves them a martini. Uh, where we get we get some uh, a great line about uh, uh, bartenders and doctors having similar yeah. roles. And as, as, as a priest, bartender things he won't tell his doctor. As, <laughs> yeah. as a priest, I, I sympathize. People tell their bartenders things they won't tell their priest either. <laughs> <laughs> maybe bartender, maybe priest should be uh, standing at a bar uh, sometimes. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm, so, uh, anyways, I don't want to say anything that'll get me in trouble with my bishop. So. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, Jimmy, you did say one thing that was uh, that I want to comment on again is, is how uh, much slower paced things are. All the special effects take much longer. Going to warp drive, um, mm-hmm. the transporter effect, which, by the way, the transporter effect at the time was so advanced. When they first aired the the final footage for the cast, who you know, of course, they don't get to see it happening while they're filming it. Right. 
when they saw the transporter effect the first time, they, there was applause uh, in the oh, audience yeah. of the casting crew because it was so cool, uh, so mm -hmm. advanced. Uh, but everything yeah. takes longer. Yeah, and part of that is because it is a pilot and they're showing off what they can do. They want to make sure that the suits see how right. cool this thing is that we're doing. But And part of it's also that television was just slower paced back then. Mm -hmm. An example of that I have in my notes is once they finally get down onto Talos 4, they beam down and they have in my I, the note says stupid travel sequence <laughs> um, because yeah. instead of just beaming down at the camp of the survivors, they beam down some distance away. And then we have to watch them laboriously walk towards where the <laughs> exactly. survivor camp is. Yeah. Uh, but that gives us a great moment, which is in Star Trek history, which is they come across this Chinese money plant sitting on a rock that's been <laughs> the and the Chinese money plant has been painted blue. So it's got little blue discs for its leaves and Spock like feels the blue leaves and smiles really broadly. Yeah. And so yeah, they're um, musical leaves. Yeah. And when they, when yeah. they, he touches them, they stop making the music, which yeah, that music was really annoying. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, that's why he's smiling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, stop being the, oh. the smiling Spock. Um, and so, yeah, they so they came to this planet because they got a distress signal that uh the it was an unexplored right. system but a, a, a an expedition from earth had crashed there 18 years previously which and, would be 2236 and the name of the lost ship this time is the columbia the columbia right mm -hmm. and uh and so they there are apparently survivors so they beam down and they encounter these this group of very old men in ragged clothes with uh, uh you know a very classic uh we cobbled together this 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 camp from the scraps of our crashed ship, except for one beautiful young woman who was born pretty much as the ship was crashing, apparently. Um, and so she's 18 years old and Pike is looking at her. Uh, who Pike has got to be how old? In his 30s, at least? 30s, yeah. That was, 30s. I'm sorry, but that was kind of creepy. <laughs> Pike was like looking to hook up already with this uh, the, the survivor girl from this. Uh, well, it's going to get creepier once they get into the cage. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, so uh, so what, what do we have? We have uh, the, the – she – Leads him off. I don't know where he thinks he's going uh, to to into yeah, this. She, want, she wants to show him something and she leads him up to these rocks. And then yeah. all of a sudden, the entire encampment of survivors, except for her, vanishes. Yep. And uh, the rocks she's led him up to open up and these bulbous headed aliens come out yep. and squirt him mm -hmm. with some powder. And he goes unconscious and they drag him down into their subterranean lair. Yes, the Talosians. Uh, I, I remember as a kid seeing the design of the Talosians, and the back of their head is kind of get this, this dimple. So of course they're the butt heads. <laughs> the butt. It, it looks like a. It looks yeah. It looks like a behind. And, and they have <laughs> got throbbing veins on their heads too. Yeah. They do. So, yeah, they've got mean, some special effects like air bladders. Some hemorrhoid cream. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, those veins were. Yeah, every time they're using their mental telepathy, uh, uh, telekinesis powers, uh, they the these veins throb. And I'm so I'm curious. They must have had some kind of like air hose running down the back of the uh, costume or yeah. something. Uh, they probably got a little hand pump that they're squeezing in their hand to make those throb. <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> okay, so enough of that. Uh, so what? So 
Pike wakes up in a in a essentially a cage, and we we learn we quickly learn that he's there are other creatures in other cages nearby. Um, really cool. We get little glimpses. We see shadows. Yes. We mm-hmm. we don't see a lot, but it's enough to show us there is a kind of alien menagerie here. It's a yes. zoo, right. of different kinds of alien creatures, and that's really neat. It's yeah. also a sci-fi trope that you see lots of places, but it's neat. Well, I was going to mention how uh, the Orville, uh, which is a, 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 a an homage to Star Trek, kind of plays off of this with their episode in which the yep. captain and his ex-wife first officer are put in a menagerie and they have to escape. Uh, and then they play the jokes off of off of that uh, circumstance pretty well. Uh, so uh, there is the, the one special effect of that pterodactyl-like creature where it's done in slow motion. Yeah, uh, it must have there must something must have gone wrong in the filming of it where they didn't have enough seconds of footage that they could use that they had to extend it out somehow or something because it was very there weird. Was some, something in the camera cranking. But I thought that kind of added to it. You know, yeah. it's like it's so weird. It made it very alien. Uh, and so there, it becomes clear very early on that these telepathic beings are trying to manipulate Pike into uh, wanting to be there and wanting to connect with hook up with uh vena um and there's this yeah. whole they're they're putting him out to stud exactly yeah um and in fact you know so vena there's a whole adam and eve vibe to this episode vena offers she's eve well, he's adam very, yeah i was gonna say they were very explicit on that you know? oh yeah mm-hmm. and in fact like, she offers him the forbidden fruit i can be anything you imagine you know that sort of yeah thing. any anything you want because of their telepathic powers so that's well, that's when it gets that's really creepy i can be <laughs> anything you want yeah <laughs> yeah exactly that's yeah. not true love well, and no. it appeals it's appealing to the basis nature of you know well human it's nature. also it's appealing to gene roddenberry's sexual fantasies is what it's doing because he has a known tendency, I and mean, the writers would talk about this, that he's, yeah. he was always trying to work his sexual fantasies into things. <laughs> mm. H- hence Kirk and all the multicolored women of the universe. Uh, so, <laughs> Oh, it but gets Pike, way weirder. But Pike isn't buying any of it. I mean, as much as Pike was conflicted earlier, he's not falling for the the temptation. Uh, you know, he's first, he's he's shown, uh, he's taken back to that, the battlefield that he just came from and now given an opportunity to save the girl from the big bad. Right. She's literally a damsel in distress. She's even dressed like she's out of a fairy tale. Right. And then, um, uh, he's taken to, uh, his hometown with his, his horses Mm -hmm. in the Mojave desert, which is now in the future is going to be green and lush, uh, Jimmy. And, and there is a town in the Mojave Desert that is called Mojave, California. So I assume mm-hmm. what we're seeing there is the 23rd century version of Mojave. It's going to be a nice neighborhood uh, when we get there. Uh, yeah, very futuristic. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so they show us initially the fairy tale princess. Then yep. they show us essentially the girl next door. Right. Yeah. And Very when domestic. He doesn't, when he doesn't go with either one of those, they show him the green slave chick. Right. And, Orion and so slave girls. we're, we're yeah. going from, we're kind of descending the purity ladder as we go here. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, it's, it's sort of a, that's another one of those sci-fi tropes that are, it's, it's really unfortunate because we get it. We get that at Star Wars, don't we? We get that with Princess Leia and the, you know, slave to Jabba the Hutt and the, uh, the, mm. the famous gold bikini. There's this tendency in science fiction. It's not, and it's it's not wrong to sort of examine it and criticize it a little bit to to kind of 
say that that it's you know, that, to cater to that sort of juvenile fantasy uh, in some in in in, the, well, in it, science fiction. It, it's also it's drawing on archetypes. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's uh, in psychology there are discussions of men being attracted to either the virgin archetype or the whore archetype. And right. mm-hmm. that's what we've got going on here. They've just added a third one in the middle of the of the girl next door who could be a reliable, competent wife. Right. She's right. neither the fairy tale princess who's, you know, presumably so pure that she couldn't sleep on a mattress with a pea under it without noting that there's a pea under the mattress. Mm-hmm. Right. And right. then and then we've got the Orion slave chick who could teach anybody a thing or two. Um, and we've got the competent spouse in the middle. Right? And, and so, you know, when, when, as Pike rejects each of these in turn, each of these temptations, real, I mean, again, it's another bit of the temptation in the desert me- metaphor, like Christ in the, yeah. uh, in the desert. Uh, he rejects each one of these. And we, we learn that Vina is not, in fact, the projection of the Telosians, but she is herself a real human being who really crashed on the planet and mm-hmm. that the Telosians are, um, an ancient race for whom dreams have become more important than reality. Another sci-fi trope. Yes, and uh, we need we need new input into our dream bank. <laughs> and so yeah. they've given. So she says, you get, uh, you give up travel, building, creating, and even forget how to repair the machines that have been left behind. So they just keep reliving the memories left behind. And and when they've got bored of those, they started collecting specimens to breed so that they can live in their memories. Um, and it's sort of a, a reaction to sort of a overall intellectualism in a sense that, you know, if you're overly intellectual, if you forget to, that connection to the world, to the earth, to the more, um, you know, uh, those aspects of life, uh, it's a dangerous thing, I guess. is the- so, so you're saying I don't know how to repair my own iPhone and just keep watching the same YouTube videos over and over again? <laughs> <laughs> and posting to Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram? Yeah. Well, it, and it's, it's interesting, too, that this was done at a time when TV was still new technology. Right. And it's almost kind of a warning saying, you know, don't get too caught up in this. Well, it was a time when all like when technology was advancing by leaps and bounds right. in, in all areas yeah. of life. And it, so a sort of warning about about that and about it's, technology it's, becoming a and it, you know, Of course, as technology has gone forward and we're talking about the Internet and YouTube and all that, you know, how many people I mean, here's I mean, here's a simple thing. You know, how many people know how to change the oil in their car? Oh, it's nobody. not a difficult task. <laughs> yeah. it, you know, it depends, on, it depends on how recently you bought your car. They made it more difficult. Well, I've got a 2012 sitting out here that I don't even have to jack up to change the oil on. You know, <laughs> changing the oil is, is for since the invention of the car has always been considered, you know, a task that anybody can do. A rite of passage, and even a rite of passage. How many people or another analogy? How many people know how to plant a garden? You know, things like that, things that that for much of humanity or at least much of the invention of something has been taken for granted. But we're losing, you know, many people are losing that. They don't know what to do. What happens when your car breaks down? What do you do? What happens, you know, if if call triple A? Exactly. <laughs> well, that's that's led to actually a lot of uh, current sci fi that kind of posits an apocalyptic world where what right. happens when the machines stop working? What how do we survive? Uh, right. Exactly. So. This is kind of so, playing on that. Yeah. So so in this episode of sci-fi, um, <laughs> we we eventually find out what the Enterprise is doing while their captain has been kidnapped. 
And one thing that I think is really cool is they bring down a laser cannon. <laughs> yeah. And this is like the this is the only time in Star Trek we ever get to see a laser cannon in operation. Uh, but it is so awesome. And initially, it doesn't look like the laser cannon is doing anything. It's just mm-hmm. blasting and blasting and blasting, and that stuff's getting hot, and some little bits of rock are flying off. But basically, the doors are, look impregnable. Right. But mm-hmm. later, once they realize the Telosians can create mental illusions, they get to see what the laser cannon really did, and it like blew off the entire rock face. Well, that was one really cool. One thing I really liked was that they knew all they knew quite early that they were that the Telosians can make illusions, and I think it was Doctor Bo- uh, Boyce who had, who said something along the lines of, "Well, you know, we could have blown the top off of that rock formation, but we can't. We never know because yeah, we can't trust anything we pretty, see. Pretty right. much did." I mean, the big yep. chasm in the middle of the rock there and it's split. Right. Yeah. And and that was a nice element is like they all of their they they knew that all of whatever efforts they were taking, they had no way of knowing whether it was actually working or not. Right. Uh, and, and, and that feeds into the danger in this episode, because as Vina points out, they can make you think you're pushing any button they right. want you to, including the self-destruct button. Right. Exactly. exactly. And at one point, they they the transporter chief um, is tricked into uh, beaming down um, number one and the yeoman to yeah. to the surface and nobody else, but, but uh, not which, Spock and the others. At yeah. which point, Spock has a great line. He goes, "The women." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was uh, another great Spock moment in this episode. And they're beamed down by the uh, Telosians because mm-hmm. obviously. Pike doesn't like the 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 one they've been offering, so maybe he'll want one of these other two. And yeah. we have this and, embarrassing and it, moment where they're reading the minds of the women about how they really feel about the captain. Yeah. And, yeah. Oh, and they're they're also talking about their the benefits of breeding with respectively. So number one, you're going to have uh, you're going to have a very intelligent offspring. If you mate with the yeoman, though, she's has she's very healthy and has very healthy sexual appetite. Um, yeah. <laughs> she's previously <laughs> considered you unattainable, but is now beginning to realize her situation has changed. <laughs> and she turned about as, as red as her hair. <laughs> well, you know, it's very interesting. We get their fantasies or, or their attraction, but we never told they never they never um, look into are able to tell us what Pike's is, partly because Pike is using this technique he's figured out of mm-hmm. filling his mind with hate to block yeah. their. See, uh, kind of based emotion. off the. Based off the conversation with the doctor earlier in the episode, he mentioned going and being an Orion trader. Well, yeah, and I, was I think say, that scene was kind of his fantasy. Yeah, in, was, in that in that initial bartender scene, he they basically talk through his fantasies, and then we get to see each one of them. Right. They, one of the things we didn't mention about the Orion thing is again the Gene Roddenberry unfortunate his proclivities. Um, we're told by by a Starfleet officer apparently that. Uh, Oh, oh, Orion! It's it's a planet of slave of women who like to be taken advantage of. Yeah, and like animal it, slave women. It's like yep. ew, like this is like creepy. Like suppose you had all of a space to choose from, and this was just one small sample. Wouldn't it be worth a man's soul? I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I mean, well, very, a very but, clear reference to the biblical the verse, right? Uh, yeah, like, and it's what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Um, but it, and that's not the only religion reference in here. We've also got a moment when the Telosians are trying to get Pike to comply, and they don't seem to realize. By the way, there's 
203 other people up on that ship that are presumably <laughs> split into two sexes that we could all, some of them might go for this offer. <laughs> right, um, right. But, oh, but uh, you got to have the captain. You got to have the, yeah. the, the top of the food chain. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but anyway, they're, 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 they're kind of, um, they're torturing him mentally and they, they, uh, put him in hell. And it's very clearly hell. It's like there's, he's surrounded by fire. It's kind of an interesting, it's, it's subterranean. It's yep, kind of an yep. interesting visualization of hell because there's also like pools of some liquid there. I'm sure it's really water, but right. what it's meant to be, you have this fire and water subterranean hell. Sort of lava. And the Telosian says, from a fable you once heard in childhood. <laughs> and, and then says there are, so hell is considered a fable by Gene Roddenberry in this episode. Right. And uh, the Telosian then says there are even less pleasant things lurking in your subconscious we could show you. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think in all of us, probably. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so by the, by the end of this, well, actually, mm -hmm. I want to make one more point about the, like, you know, often Vina and number one and the yeoman. Is at no point do they ever just say, "Look, you can have all three of them. We're better off if we have uh, yeah more breeding." Exactly. More, but but it's it's interesting. Sort of the the assumption on the part of the writers and producers, and probably because the 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 the, the, the morality of the of the audience that they're taking into account right. is the idea is you know if you want your captain to be the sort of guy who's only going to be with one woman, and you don't want to even enter into uh, the well, whole, they they even even talked about how. Uh, the Telosians wanted to have these this man and woman in a happy husband and life husband and wife relationship, and right. it made that explicit. And then that's where that the, the vision of of her as his wife yeah. came about. Yeah. Yes, that it, so it was very clearly a monogamous relationship that they were going for. Um, oh wow! I just realized something. And this, they would never have been able to do this on TV back then. But since they can make you think anybody looks like anybody else. If they ever got you to buy on this offer, they could have you breed with as many different people as they wanted you to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's true. Mm -hmm. And neither of you would know if, if you or the other any other people would yep. know uh, yeah. what you were doing. Yeah, it's uh, the Telosian power is creepy when you get when you start really to think about creepy. it. <laughs> yeah. But 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 it's, in the end, well, go ahead. Uh, uh, I was going to say so as yeah. we're getting towards the end. So yeah. <clears throat> once Spock realizes at a certain point that this is hopeless, He's getting ready to leave, <laughs> right? Which yeah. is amazing. I mean, like he would never just leave Kirk, right? Um, which shows how different his character is at this point. And when, um, uh, and then number one, of course, takes charge of the situation, which is great. That's her job. Um, at one point, to save others, like Pike volunteers um, to to like kind of cooperate, but. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's it's interesting. In the end, we have this kind of weird in. I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of a downbeat ending, right? Because yeah. they reveal to us. I mean, number one points out to Vina there was a Vina on the crew manifest for the Columbia as right. an adult mm -hmm. crew yes. woman. She wasn't born eighteen years ago. Yeah, so she's like in her thirties at least. At least um, at yeah. this point. And 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 they then show us Vina's true form, and she's very deformed, deformed, yeah, yeah. Be, because of. And they tell us it's because of the injuries she suffered in in the crash. Um, and the Telosians rebuilt her and did their best, but they didn't have any guide in rebuilding a woman. 
which mm. really makes no sense because if they yeah. can access her mind, I mean, they clearly know her mental image of herself because they're using it with Pike. Right, right. And right. so it's like use her own mental image as a guide for what she should look like. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, but then they have this ending where, you know, they've concluded that uh, that Pike's will is too strong and well, humans are not a suitable successor species, even though they should have been able to tell that from Vina. Right. And and so now because Vina's deformed, she's going to stay with them and live with a fantasy Pike on mm-hmm. this planet. So she gets a sort of creepy, happy ending. And then the <laughs> ship just leaves. Yeah. And it's kind of a weird downbeat ending, which is yeah. which they sort of fix in the menagerie, uh, which because the conveniently they have that that scene of Vina and Pike walking off together into the Telosian uh, right. fantasy so world. Reuse and reinterpret that footage. Yeah, it's very, mm. which is very interesting that they had that to be able to do that. Um, yeah, the, like yeah, the, the Telosians conclude that humans are uniquely unsuitable for captivity, preferring to die than be captured, right. even when the captivity is pleasant. So I'm thinking. That's unique. Like other creatures yeah. are not okay with this. Are okay I, I'm with sure this? Klingons would love that. I'm sure Klingons would love to be captive slaves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we we have enough trouble with pandas. Yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. Uh so uh then we kind of wrap things up as we as has become traditional in Star Trek with uh the our our triumvirate on the bridge kind of uh talking together and um I forget exactly what the co- the context is um the uh oh the vena and the and the is you know was supposed to be eve and the doctor's like eve as an adam and and pike responds as in all ships doctors are dirty old men yeah <laughs> and i'm like well they, well first yeah the omen asks uh sir just out of curiosity who was gonna be eve yeah. to which he gets yelled at by number one yeah because yeah, exactly. he's got three options the yeoman is still thinking about who would it have been exactly <laughs> that, yeah. that that yeoman is not the smartest uh, crewman on the ship that's for sure <laughs> I, I have a but feeling she got very healthy offspring yes yes i have mm. a feeling she got transferred to a new ship after that uh so uh <laughs> and, so, and then pike gets the final line engage yes which yep. is an interesting uh we'll we'll see that again in star trek uh, which is nice. Um, I wonder if that was intentional in the next gen, whether that was an intentional callback or not. Uh, I wonder. Um, so anything else you want us uh, to be said about the cage? Uh, any other? Um, I just had two little notes. One of them is we later learn in the menagerie that this planet has been made the subject of what's called general order number four. Right. And general order number four is do not go to Talos four. That's it. Right. Um, And that Mm -hmm. shows you how the fact this is general order number four is it indicates how seriously they take don't go to Talos four because the prime Hmm. directive is general order number one. Right. This is only three ranks below that. And you can imagine why they would want to not go there, um, because if the Telosians decided, hey, why should we stay on this rock? (laughs) <laughs> Let's go out into the galaxy and do stuff. They would be amazingly dangerous. So yeah. if, if you're not going to genocide them, avoiding all contact with them is right. the logical thing to do. Given that they had no space flight. Yeah. Also, um, I thought it was interesting in, in that number one uh, has blue nails. Uh, she, she paints her nails blue. 
Hmm. Whereas red would have been the common color at the time, but they yeah. reflect, I guess, her kind of cool personality. Okay. Um, Speaking also, of- that that also reminds me. Um, the so there were two characters that were criticized heavily by um, by the suits after they mm-hmm. saw the cage. One was Spock, and one was Number One. And Roddenberry realized he wasn't going to get the show greenlit if he kept both of them. And so he compromised and and told Majel Barrett, who wasn't yet his wife, I'm Mm -hmm. sorry, we'll create something else for you, but I've got to lose number one because I think it's really, really important we have an alien in this crew. And so he kept Spock. As a comp- but as a compromise, lost number one. She, of course, was crushed because this was a really great part. And Christine Chapel was not on the same level as number right. one would have been. Um, but that's how the Spock number one exchange happened. And then number one's emotionlessness was transferred to Spock. Right. You know, one, one thing I was going to point out, you know, speaking of, of red, there were no red shirts. You know, of course, right. that's the famous trope in, in Star Trek of the red shirts who always die. Um, but there was only uh, the the yellow, green, whatever color it was in blue mm-hmm. uh, for the uniforms. Yeah, that's very Yeah. It, the, the uniforms was another interesting little bit. And the doctor had a sort of duty uniform versus, mm-hmm. uh, you know, working in the sick bay uniform versus it was like a jumpsuit versus uh, other uniforms. And even their they're, 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 they're own- really fuzzy. They look like they're velour or something. Yeah, I know. They yeah. must have been really hot uh, to wear those under the studio lights, which is probably mm-hmm. why we got much lighter materials later on. <laughs> but they also had um, sort of their away mission gear. They had a jacket and a harness and, you know, they hung mm-hmm. things on them. And I mean, it was very much more than what we eventually got was like basically Velcro under the shirt for the communicator and the phaser. Uh, and later on so those are very interesting so i think that uh sort of wraps up what we have to say about the cage and uh um, again i want to just you know encourage people to uh, like and to share this episode with other folks and share the 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 podcast with folks and let them know that we're doing it and that uh they might enjoy it especially if they're star trek fans of course so that's it from us what did you think of the the original pilot episode the cage um we will be dealing with this again at presumably when we talk about the menagerie um Mm -hmm. but this was just about the cage so let us know by visiting uh sqpn.com slash trek uh or the sqpn facebook page and leave us some feedback there or uh send us an email to trek at sqpn.com and we'll put links to our our social media and our personal websites uh on our show notes at sqpn.com We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the second, the original series pilot, where No Man Has Gone Before, which was not the first episode of Star Trek aired. Uh, so <laughs> that we'll talk about that then. Uh, until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me in sharing the secrets of Star Trek. My pleasure. Father Corey Stika, thank you as well. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening. And remember, you either live life bruises, skin, knees, and all, will you turn your back on it and start dying? This is Dom Bettinelli again. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and that you'll help us keep producing the podcast you love. Thank you for your generosity. 
To make your pledge and find out about the free thank you gifts we'd like to send you, visit sqpn.com give. That's sqpn.com give.